Heavenly Father, we praise you for your great love towards us. Thank you, Father, for loving us so. Lord, your, your love for us uh, is certain, is sure. It is uh, something which we can never be separated from. And we thank you, Lord, that your steadfast love uh, strengthens us and holds us even through uh, the trials and tribulations of this life. God, we pray that you would cause each of us to grow in our understanding and our, our grasp of your love for us, your love for your people, and that that would encourage us to re- respond to love you in return. Lord, we thank you for your book that reveals to us your will for our lives and the instruction that we need <clears throat> for this life and the next. Lord, may you open up your book to us, your truths, cause us to grasp them by the power of your spirit and live by them with your help. Give us grace, we pray, and show us how we ought to live before you as sojourners here on earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, take them and please turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. That's what will be this morning. Numbers 21. And uh, <clears throat> this uh, is perhaps one of the most, at least the inc- one of the incidents, events in this chapter, probably makes the one most well-known events in all of Numbers. Uh, uh, and though it's the, this, this, uh, the record of the bronze serpent... Um, but we'll be looking at the whole chapter, and hopefully we'll see uh, the understanding, the, the, the truth of the bronze serpent in the context of even the, the greater chapter and see that, um, that it's uh, not just about a bronze serpent, but uh, uh, understand what this chapter teaches about the Lord. So Numbers chapter 21, as so we're going to look at this morning, Numbers 21. Uh, recently... Um, <clears throat> As a as a dad of young kids, I, I read various books to them, and one of the books I've been reading recently has is based on uh, it's a of John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Any of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, well, yeah. Anyways, um, uh, if you don't like the old, you know, you know, kind of writings, uh, then you can read the children's version. Uh, it's called The Little Pilgrim's Progress, the illustrated edition. I find it a pretty good read, actually. But it follows the story of a little rabbit named Christian. And he leaves his home in the city of destruction to seek out the celestial city where a good and wise king rules. The story is a charming and profound allegory of the journey of a Christian's life. It's an allegory of your life and mine as Christians. And along the way, a little Christian encounters many crises, many temptations that hinder him on his journey, that threaten his journey. Uh, And if you have not read the story, I do commend it to you. It reads much differently as an adult as when when I first read it as a young Christian in college. It's much much more profound uh, than when I realized uh, back in the days. Uh, But it it does reflect, and many of those things and we see in Christian's life really reflect our own. Christian, in a similar way, uh, uh, is like all of us. We are all pilgrims on a journey. Uh, a journey 
to the celestial city, to where our good king awaits us. Along the way in this journey, we too face crises, we too face temptations and trials that hinder us in our journey. And like Christian, we must keep trusting in the good king to help us along the way. And The Pilgrim's Progress is a wonderful book, but Numbers is a better book. And in many ways, the book of Numbers is like The Pilgrim's Progress. It is a record of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And Israel's wandering in the wilderness provides for us an example for believers today. We just read in our call to worship in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that all the things that happened to Israel in the wilderness happened as to be an example. Verse, chapter, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, Now these things happened to them, that is that wilderness generation, as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. As you know, Numbers is a book of the wandering of two generations through the wilderness. The Israelites, the first generation, began well, but along the way they failed to trust the Lord when the very moment came to enter the promised land. So they were cursed to die and wander in the wilderness. In chapter 20, which we looked at last time, we saw the, the end of that first generation with the death of Moses, the death of Miriam, and the judgment of Moses to also die in the wilderness as well. And so here in chapter 21 of Numbers, we now see the beginning of the second generation. It formally doesn't begin until Numbers 26, where the, uh, the second census is taken, but you can see the beginnings, really, of the second generation and their, uh, their acts and the, what they do as they wander in the wilderness. And as the second generation begins their journey, we see them learning to walk by faith in the Lord. Remember early on, when we, at the very beginning of our study of Numbers, Numbers reveals to us uh, the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of men. It reveals to us how God is faithful and we, as uh, those who follow him, must learn to walk by faith. We must learn to be faithful and to follow and keep his ways. And this passage for us this morning does exactly that. It sets for us an example of how you and I ought to live as faithful Christian pilgrims, journeying toward our heavenly home and while facing the various crises and temptations along the way. And we're going to look at this passage. It's a long chapter, verse 35 verses. Uh, many of the things we're going to read in here are like unfamiliar places. It's, it's, a, it's basically a record of their journey in that uh, 40th year. Uh, but I hope that we will see that they're clearly on a journey and that uh, the lessons that we can learn from how they responded in the midst of this journey are lessons for us today. So as an outline for us, we're going to look at uh, four points, four events, Four events in the next generation's journey toward the promised land that encourage us to walk by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at today. Four events that it, uh, encourage us to walk by faith in Jesus Christ. So the first event, as we see, we're going to read here in Numbers chapter 21, is when Arad attacked. Okay, when Arad attacked. So, uh, uh, let's read about when Arad attacked. Verse 21, chapter, 20, chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. 
the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. After Israel, and at the end of chapter 20, had mourned for Aaron's death for a period of 30 days, the Lord then led them to continue their journey toward the promised land. Along the way, as they're leaving, uh, uh, leaving um, um, the, mount, uh, the mountain where Aaron had died, they are attacked by some Canaanites. Uh, the Canaanites are the, the, those who dwelled in the land of Canaan. And they're led by this king of Arad. Well, we don't have a name of who he is, but he was the king of Arad, a, a city in the Negev. Negev is the southern part of the land of Canaan. So this was one of the Canaanite kings. So there were many of them, and they were oftentimes the king of this, king of that. But simply, they were basically like our modern-day mayors. They, they just ruled a city, and maybe a, a few kind of they had some influence in a few of the neighboring cities or towns. But this was the king of Arad, the king of the city of Arad. Um, and the king of Arad had heard of Israel's coming, and either out of fear, out of greed, out of threat, he was threatened, he decided to bring, his, bring all his soldiers out and attack Israel, and, um, and he attacked Israel, and then he took some of them captive. He, he took some of them, and it wasn't for, you know, for ransom, because these captives, he basically took them to become their sla- his slaves. These captives were spoils of war, they uh, and that was very common in those days. After battles, they would just take things, take whatever possessions, and they would take people, they would take uh, livestock, and they would take it as their own. This was essentially the first battle that the second generation had faced. And, uh, but not only did they lose the battle, as we see here, but they lost some of their family uh, as well, their friends, their neighbors, and we see that uh, it was like a, a major tragedy that had struck them. There was probably, um, it was an unprovoked attack. It was probably, it was an unexpected attack. And the thing is, when we think about this situation, it, it's really not unlike our situations today. There are still times in our days when attacks unprovoked, unexpected happen, and lives are, are killed, lives are lost. And it's, it is a shock to, just as much as it was a shock to Israel, it is a shock to us as well. When tragedy strikes a community, there is in those inevitable moments of agony and mourning. Our, I know our nation has been experiencing that of late. The reality is you cannot change what has happened, but we can change our, how we respond to it. How do we respond to, to tragedies? How do we respond when evil men attack? And Israel's response to this tragedy by seeking the Lord. When Arad attacked, Israel sought the Lord. They learned to walk by faith and seek the Lord's help to overcome their enemies and rescue their people. Specifically, you see that they make a vow. So Israel made a vow. And notice that it's, the description here in this whole chapter, it focuses really upon Israel as a nation. No longer is it Moses or Aaron uh, Aaron's already gone, Miriam's already gone, Moses on the way out, but it's now Israel. Really, it, when we will, later on, we're going to learn in Joshua, when we will learn, but if you read in Joshua, it's really Joshua that's leading these battles. Joshua, is the, he's the next generation's leader. And so Israel, led by Joshua, goes out, and, and they seek the Lord's help and they, to, to defeat Arad. They make a vow to the Lord that if he would help them deliver Arad into their hand, then they would utterly destroy the cities of the Canaanites. They would not, they said, they, they vowed not to take any of the spoils of war for themselves, 
Instead, they vow to basically destroy utterly all the enemy cities. And the Lord responded to their requests and responded by delivering the Canaanites into their hands. God gave them victory over the Canaanites, and then Israel, in faithful obedience, just as they vowed, destroyed all the cities, including and surrounding Aram. Destruction was so complete that the name of the place was called Hormah. Hormah actually means destruction. Israel's second generation faced basically here their first obstacle, and they responded with faith, seeking the Lord for help and faithfully fulfilling their vow. You know, we love to think in our modern world that we no longer live in times where wars don't exist or where evil men don't attack out of the blue. We love to think that we live in such a world, but, but we don't. Our world is really still in many ways the same. There are still evil men and women, women too out there who out of evil, greed, lust, pride, attack, kill. And the reality is that they, these problems still exist in our world because the heart of man is still the same. We're still uh, humankind that is cursed under the curse by sin. Where we live in a world where <clears throat> the love of self is a virtue, where evil is not punished, where life is not valued. As long as we live in such a world where we will keep encountering men like the king of Aram. And when we face evil men who attack God's people, we must learn to, from Israel's example, we must learn to similarly walk by faith and seek the Lord for help and how to respond. Now make them, uh, I would caution us uh, and any of us of making a vow. Say, Lord, if you do this, I'm going to do this. Uh, we don't need to make a vow. They made a vow because they were seeking the, trying to seek the Lord's will. If he would do this, and they, then they would do that as if to help them to understand what God's will was, is. But we have the sure word of God. And God's word gives us his instructions for how we ought to respond. We must faithfully trust him and obey his word if we are to overcome the obstacles and the attacks of the enemies of God. Practically speaking, walking by faith in a world where sinners attack, whether physical or spiritual, for the Christian means to obey what Jesus commanded us. It means to Respond to the attacks of evil men with love. Jesus called us to love our enemies. Scriptures call us to not return evil for evil. Scripture calls us to pray for our enemies, to speak truth in love to our enemies. When Arad attacked, Israel sought the Lord. And like the first generation, they started off well, in walking by faith in their God. And that's a, they set the example for us. Sometimes the obstacles to walking by faith arise from within. They're not external. They're internal circumstances, the internal conditions of our heart. And we see this a second event, and then verses 4 through 9, and uh, that teach us to also walk by faith. Is that for Israel is when Israel sinned, when Israel sinned. 
Uh, this section of Numbers is the most uh, familiar part of the whole book, even when we did our introduction. This is the, probably the most clear example of and pointer to Christ in all of the book of Numbers. In fact, we know that in John chapter 3, Jesus will actually quote this, uh, this passage, this event here, before John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world. But here, uh, and, and though we, we are, as even as we read this, we, we cannot help but think about what Jesus says uh, in John 3.16 and read it back here to Numbers 21, I want us to try to grasp this, um, this section, particularly in the context of chapter 21. <clears throat> because this passage stands in contrast uh, to the Israel's faith in verses 1 to 3. And so we, and we see Israel's faith in 1 to 3, but here we, in verses 4 to 9, we see Israel's faithlessness. One moment they're walking with the Lord, and the next moment they're not. Does that sound familiar? Because that's us, right? One day I'm blessing the Lord, the next day I'm cursing the driver in front of me. You know, that, that's, it's us. We are fallen creatures. Uh, we, are, we want to live right. We want to God, honor God as Christians, and we do that. But there, there's that still there. We still have that sinful nature there. The next day, we, we fail, and we, we don't exemplify faithfulness in God as we ought. So how, then, do we walk by faith when we so often sin? How do we handle that? How do you handle it? You know, if you're a human being, I know you, you have come to the grasp realization that, boy, the battle against sin is hard. I find, my, I find myself constantly confessing my sins to God and asking for forgiveness. And that can be discouraging because we are, sometimes think that the life of the Christian is to be a perfect life. It's not. But nevertheless, we, we set that standard, a standard that you cannot, cannot, cannot keep, right? So how do we live? in a world where we sin. Let's kind of learn, we can learn from this chapter, or this passage, verse 4 to 9. Numbers 21, verse 4 to 9. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against Moses, God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord, that, so that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, He will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, serpent, he lived. Following the great uh, victory against the king of Arad, uh, in the southern area of the land of Canaan, it would have been most natural since they were had the momentum of the victory to just charge right into north and head right into Canaan and just take the promised land. At least that's probably what uh, any military commander might think, but who knows. But they didn't go that way. Instead of going north into Canaan, they went the other direction. They went south. They went south. They went by the way of the Red Sea. 
They went south to go all the way around the land of Edom because Edom didn't want to let them in through. So they went all the way south towards the Red Sea, towards not the, where the Red Sea, they, where they had crossed, but the Red Sea where the Gulf of Aqaba is, the other part of the finger, you know, where the, of the Red Sea. And so they went south and around. Now, as they travel along, recall that why do they go this way? Because they're, they're following the Lord. Throughout their journey, if you remember, uh, they followed the Lord in the pillar of cloud. And instead of going north, they're led south by the Lord towards the Red Sea by the, by the Gulf of Aqaba, as we mentioned. And it was a significant detour, especially after a major victory. You know, like, here we are, the, the iron's hot, let's strike. And, but yet, no, they, they go south. It's like all of a sudden, you, you kind of started, and then, uh, no, let's go, let's go south. And so it was very understandable when we, when we read about it that when they, they go south, go away from the promised land to go around Edom, the people became impatient because of the journey. I mean, you and I would go that way. Instead of say, if I want to go to Disneyland, and I said, well, let me go to, go to Seattle first, and then we'll come back around. My kids would be very impatient with me. But the fact is, Israel grew impatient. And, and they became impatient, and so as a result of their impatience, they started to once again complain. Just like the previous generation, just like their parents, they began to grumble and complain. They spoke against God and Moses. It's like a repeated chorus of the people of God. Why did you take us out of Egypt? We're going to die in the wilderness. There's no food here. There's no water here. And we loathe this miserable food. Referring to the manna. You see, they were sinning again, just like their parents, to grumble and complain against God and his chosen leader was sin. It revealed in these Israelites, after that great act of faith in the Lord, and when Arad attacked here, we see a failure upon Israel to fit trust in the Lord. So our God, as faithful as he is, doesn't let, let Israel go, but he disciplines his people once again, as he does to us. He sends fiery serpents, uh, otherwise known as snakes, that bite the people. The word fiery, why are they called fiery? It either reflects probably their color, maybe they were fiery of color, or perhaps reflects the inflammation uh, that resulted from the, the bites of the snakes. But nevertheless, as a result, the bites were, were venomous, and the venomous was, was deadly, and, and many died, of the Israelites died because of the chasing of the Lord. And so when they were chastened by the Lord, how did the people respond? They responded like we do when we're chastened by the Lord, with acknowledgement and confession. They confessed their sin. They asked for forgiveness. They asked Moses to intercede for them because uh, Aaron was no longer there. So they asked Moses to intercede for them. And the Lord then replied with that unusual instruction to, well, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and then lift it up so that when anyone's bitten by a snake, they can look at that bronze serpent, and then they're healed. Wow. This sounds like magic, you know? It's, it's, just, so, it's, it's, it's just so unexpected. It's a strange kind of request. But that's exactly what happened. Moses, in obedience, made, the bronze, made a bronze serpent. He put it on a standard, a pole. He lifted it up, and whenever anyone was bidden, if they would, buy in, if they would trust God's word and in faith, look to that bronze serpent, they would be healed. If they didn't believe in God and they didn't look in that, that, on that bronze serpent, then they would die. But why? Why does this happen? 
this way. Why does God send snakes instead of a plague, for instance, as he did before? Why doesn't he, he cause the, the earth to open up and swallow them all? Why doesn't he send fire on down from heaven to burn them all up? Why, why a serpent? Why some snakes? Well, the scriptures don't, don't say, particularly. But the most likely answer is that God sent snakes simply because the snakes were a, a symbol of Egypt. There's a close association of snakes with Egypt. Snakes, if you ever think about the, you ever think of Pharaoh and you, you see that the head, uh, the headdress that he wears, usually on the top of that headdress it is, a, is a snake, a serpent. Snakes were considered to be protections to the kings of Egypt. Many times, many, in fact, many types of snakes were considered manifestations of the gods and goddesses of, that, uh, uh, that Egypt believed in. So Israel's oft-expressed desire to return to the good old days of Egypt needed to be corrected by the Lord. It was like, you want, you want the snakes of Egypt? You want to go back to, there to Egypt? I'll give you snakes. So he gave them snakes, and, the, and they bit them, and they died. And so the, the image of the bronze servant, serpent here really is a reminder to them of God's judgment for their sin. It's a reminder that they were that God, in judgment of the rebellion, the grumbling, complaining, sent serpents to bite them. And so, it was an image of a serpent needed to be lifted up, so they would be reminded that that is the judgment for their sins. That that is the payment for their sins. That had that was that was the consequence for their sins. And when looked upon with faith, was the means of deliverance from death. And this is why. Jesus in John chapter 3 uh, refers to this event. By the way, when Israel sinned, Israel looked to the Lord. In John chapter 3, verse 14 to 15, right before that well-known for God so loved the world, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Just as that bronze serpent was lifted up as a reminder of the judgment of God for Israel's sin, so Jesus uses that same analogy and he describes his own life. That the Son of Man himself, that is, must also be lifted up on the cross. And him being lifted up on the cross was the visual reminder to everyone who would see him that this was God's judgment for our sins, for man's sins. But yet all who look upon him in faith find salvation for him, deliverance from death and the assurance of eternal life. And that's, why, and that's how it connects with John chapter 3. But when Israel sinned, it hindered their journey to the promised land. It threatened their journey to the promised land. But in this case, <clears throat> they repented and they looked to the Lord's <clears throat> provision for their sin. They looked to God to, to, to God to provide for them a way of forgiveness. And that gives us an example of how we can walk by faith during our journey here on earth. Inevitably, we are going to sin. We will sin. I would imagine, think about today, can you go through this whole day without sin? Probably not. And I'm not saying you're going to do some egregious sin. 
I don't want to say some thought. It's an arrogant thought, a prideful thought, a lustful thought, an attitude of impatience, an attitude of unkindness, an attitude of being cheap and not generous and unkind. You know, some of these things, and and oftentimes it's the attitudes which result in different actions that we do. Judgmental attitude towards others, an unsubmissive heart towards others. We're going to uh, unloving and unkindness. And all these things are the full gamut of uh, the sins that we have. That we we are guilty of. Um, sometimes we will get so ensnared by sin where we actually forget to confess that sin. We we live it ongoing in sin, and the, God is faithful. Of course, if we belong to Him, He will He will chasten us. He will discipline us because He's a Father. And hopefully in those times as we experience the chasing of the Lord because of our sin, we too will respond as Israel and learn to walk by faith to repent and look to the Lord's provision. When we sin, when you and I sin, who do you look to? Who do you turn your eyes to? A lot of times when we're sinning, it's because we're looking at ourselves. Okay, That's just usually what it is. I want this, I want that, I want this. I want... It's, it's us. But when we sin and the Lord chastens us, it's meant to drive us to look to him. Sometimes in our sinfulness, we, we continue to look to ourselves and we continue to run away. But God wants us to look to the Lord, look to him, and look to the provision that he has made for our sin. The one who was lifted up on the cross. So that every one time we look at that cross... We can have confidence knowing that our sins are forgiven because God has paid the price for our sins. Throughout our days, we need to look to Jesus for it is his death that covers our sins. Now, with the attitudes corrected then, the Israelites' attitudes corrected in the second event uh, where they look to the Lord, uh, we arrive at our third event in this passage and that is uh, when the journey continued, when the journey continued. And verse 10 to 20 is really this, this long section of, of basically there different places that they stopped at. And there's a, an odd section in between and just some, uh, some, a couple of poems, uh, poems slash songs that are in between. And it's, uh, it, it's quite, it's, uh, it's challenging reading, to tell you the truth, and difficult to interpret exactly. But let us, uh, even though the names may be obscure, let's read it first. And then we'll observe what we can. When the journey continued. Verse 10 to 20 of Numbers chapter 21. Now the sons of Israel moved out and camped in Oboth. They journeyed from Oboth and camped at Ea-Abarim in the wilderness, which is opposite Moab, to the east. From there they set out and camped in Wadi Zered. From there they journeyed and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that comes out of the border of the Amorites. For the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb in Sufa and the wadis of the Arnon, and the slope of the wadis that extend to the site of Ar and that leads to the border of Moab. From there, they continued to Beer, that is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Assemble the people that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up a well, sing to it, the well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug, with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness they continued to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nahaliel, from Nahaliel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley that is in the land of Moab, at the top of Pisgah, which overlooks the wasteland. 
catch all that. It's, it's, it's a journey narrative, okay? <clears throat> uh, you know, it's good, really good devotional reading. Uh, but no, there is something to be observed here, nevertheless. After moving south around Edom, uh, I wish I had thrown up a map, but I didn't have the time. The Israelites then started to move north. They're on the eastern edge of Edom. They started moving north along the eastern edge, arriving eventually in a place called Oboth, then in a place, place called Ie-Abarim, then Wadi Zered, that's a, like a river, uh, then the other side of the Arnon, another river, and on to Be'er, that's a Matana, Nehaliel, Bamoth, and Pisgah. These are like, you know, this was their travel routes, essentially. Uh, arriving eventually on the eastern edge of Moab. Eastern edge of the mother. We see that in verse 11. Now, scholars <clears throat> who read the commentaries, and I was, you know, thinking about taking a couple weeks and just elaborating all these for you. No, I'm kidding. But <clears throat> it's, these, uh, these, are, these scholars and archaeologists, they have actually tried to dig up some places, try to identify some of these locations and tell you, you know, what's significant about them. Um, and there is some, there's some benefit in that. But it helps if you actually travel to the land uh, and uh, looked at some of these places. But the big picture here, if I could just point out the big picture, is that what is Israel doing here? Is that Israel is journeying. And Israel is journeying between moving and camping. Moving and camping. Look at verse 10. They moved and camped. Verse 11. They journeyed and camped. Verse 12. They set out and camped. Verse 13. They journeyed and camped. And all of this is very this is repetitive wording. And the wording is remi- reminiscent to us of Numbers uh, of Numbers chapter, uh, Numbers chapter 9, verse 17 to 18. And uh, let me get there as we follow the Lord. There it is. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. So we see, remember, remember, Numbers chapter 9 reminds us of how God led Israel. And that's what Israel was doing. God was leading them, but most importantly, we learned that Israel was following the Lord. When the journey continued, Israel followed the Lord. When they went south, they were impatient and they grumbled against the Lord. They didn't want to follow the Lord, and that's why God sent his serpents. But, But when they were chastened and repented. Now, when the journey continued, wherever they went in these no-name places, these basically places that are just unfamiliar to anyone, they're just stop highway stops on the road, God, they follow the Lord. If you want them to stay for a month or a year in Oboth, so be it. And God may send you to a place like Oboth, wherever that may be, and may you follow the Lord there. The movement in verses 10 to 20 implies that Israel had learned their lesson from their impatience and now was following the Lord's leading. When the journey continued, Israel followed the Lord. What's more along the way, just as a uh, same thing we can observe, but we don't have really the time to dig into them at the significance because it's difficult interpretation, is that along the way, as they follow the Lord, they worship the Lord. Two, you just kind of look in your Bibles, you'll see that there's two, loca- two sections, verse 14, 15, verses 17, 18, places where Israel worshiped God. They worshiped him because of how he led them in the, the now no longer extant book of the wars of the Lord. 
basically, just by the title, tells you this is how the Lord led them during the wars that you know that uh, that they uh, that they follow where they follow God through these places in Wahab and Sufa. There's no verb there; it just talks about the places that the Lord led them. And then verse 17, 18 talks about how God provides, saying of the rejo- the praise in the Lord and how He provided a well where God. This place called Beer, and, and you know it's always dangerous when Israel runs out of water because they usually that's when they start complaining. But in this moment, they don't complain. Instead, God gives them water, and they praise the Lord. And they worship Him, and so they worshiped along the way. Along the way, as we follow the Lord wherever the Lord leads in our sojourn here on Earth, whether it's here in San Francisco, whether it's in Seattle, whether it's going to be New Zealand or New York, or all the way across the uh, the world. Wherever God leads you, let us faithfully follow him and strive to follow wherever God wants us to be. You know, people are always coming. San Francisco is one of those cities where people are always coming and going. And it's all right. It's all right wherever you, the Lord leads you. You know, we, we sometimes we, we, miss, we miss our, our dear brothers when they, when they move on. Um, but <clears throat> wherever, wherever the Lord may be leading, make sure that you are following the Lord. Follow him not only in that that's where he wants you to be, but follow him in your life. And be faithful to God. And wherever you go, may you worship the Lord. May you find a church. Be involved with the community. So that there you can be part of God's church and worship Him. Wherever God leads you during your brief sojourn here on earth, be sure that you are following and worshiping Him. And this leads us to a last event uh, that encourages us to walk by faith, and that is in uh, the, the remaining verses, 21 to 35, and that is when the Amorites opposed, when the Amorites opposed. And these, uh, it's a lengthy ver- section, but I want to read it all to you uh, together. And uh, in this, this record here actually becomes something, a significant historical moment uh, in uh, the life and history of Israel. Verse 21, then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into the field or vineyard. We will not drink water from wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. But Sihon would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sihon gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, as far as the sons of Ammon, for the border of the sons of Ammon was Jazer. Israel took all these cities, and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all their villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab. And then taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore, those who use Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. So let the city of Sihon be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab, the dominant heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are ruined, O people of Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sihon. But we have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Dibon. Then we have laid waste even to Nopha, which reaches to Mediba. Well, let's continue. Verse 31. Then Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan, uh, Bashan, Bashan and Og, the king of 
Bashan went out with all his people for battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your land and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they killed him and his sons and all his people until there was no remnant left him, and they possessed his land. All right. It's a lot of, a lot of words, a lot of description. And uh, very interesting, you just kind of observe, there's like a, um, a poem right in the middle of it that's pretty lengthy, that seems kind of like a little uh, uh, just unexpected, it's a difficult interpretation as well. But if you just look at the big picture here, that these are, these, <clears throat> there are a significant amount of verses given to describe Israel's defeat of these two Amorite kings. These are two Amorites. Amorites are the name, basically sometimes it's used almost as a synonym of Canaanites. Canaanites is the whole land of Israel. Uh, among them, the predominant group that lived there, the people that lived there were the Amorites. And even among the Amorites, they're represented by different kings, different sit- kings of various cities. There's, in this case, there's one Sihon of Heshbon and one King Og of Bashan. Okay? So uh, there's, there's these, they were Amorite kings. But initially, as we see in, at the beginning with regards to Sihon of Heshbon, Israel sought permission to pass through Sihon's land. But just like Edom, Sihon refused and gathered his army against Israel. Now remember when Edom, the king of Edom, brought his army, Israel retreated because they didn't want to fight against their relatives. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, brother of Jacob. But this time, these were the descendants of the Amorites. These were, these were not family. And these were, uh, and this time, instead of avoiding a conflict, the Israelites meet the Amorites in battle and they defeat them. They take their cities for their own. And then we see this verse 27 to 30, a lengthy poem that describes, it actually seems to be a poem that's, that's a, a, an, an Amorite poem that was, that was taken and, and sung by Israel because uh, how Sihon had conquered uh, Heshbon from Moab and now Israel had conquered Heshbon uh, from Sihon. So uh, it's kind of just showing that their, their, their might and, their, and their, their strength of victory. But in addition to the victory of Sihon, uh, Israel also had another victory. So there's, there's the first victory against Sihon of Heshbon. There's also had a victory against a king named Og of Bashan. Og also uh, brought his army to fight against Israel at a place called Edrei. And Israel, uh, there we learn, we learn in the text, was encouraged by the Lord. And God said to them, do not fear him. Uh, maybe he had a mighty army, maybe a very strong army. And God told him, do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand all his people, and his land. And with God's encouragement, Israel defeated Og, and they possessed their land as well. So here we see two victories, primarily. One against um, the Sihon of Heshbon, one against Og of Bashan. And these two kings, they only did they defeat them, but they destroyed them, and they took their, their cities, their land, for their own. So, two questions, though, before we continue a little bit more, that we must answer. And uh, um, what is the significance of these victories? Uh, and then why, why, particularly as we read about it, we, maybe we just, you kind of just, uh, you don't think about it too much, but why the need, at least that seems that Israel basically here, well, they, they don't seem, they do, they, they kill everybody. Men, women, children, livestock. Uh, by modern terminology, we would call it genocide. 
right? Um, and so that, that, that is an apologetic type question that we need to ask, answer. But first of all, the significance. What's the significance of these victories? Well, because these victories against Og, Sihon and Og allowed Israel to take possession of the first fruits of the promised land. These were the first land, the first cities of the land of Canaan that they would possess for themselves. This was part of the promised land. This was, of course, not across, it was not on the west of the Jordan River, it was on the eastern side of the Jordan, the Transjordan. This was, and eventually became the lands in which the tribes Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh dwelt in. So these, these victories were significant for Israel because this was the first fruits of the promised land. God was fulfilling his promise to give them the promised land that he had promised to Abraham. Go take your family and leave and I will bring you to a land which I will show you. And there I will make your people great and I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing to the families of the earth. This would be that land. This was the beginnings of the fulfillment of that land. So much that these victories against Sihon and Og, if you ever read, just read your Bible, you're going to come across Sihon and Og several times in the Bible. It's, it's not just the one location, it's many times throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, three times in Deuteronomy, two times in Joshua, one time in 1 Kings, one time in the Psalms, one time in Jeremiah, one time in Nehemiah. It's like, this is like some significant battle in the history of Israel because these were the first fruits, these are the first battles that allowed them to possess the land for themselves. Now, and that's, that's the significance of these battles. Now, as to the need for total destruction, the, answer, the short answer is because God had commanded it so. Because God had commanded it so. Not just because they decided to do it themselves, but God had commanded it so. Uh, when the Israel strength, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, in Amos chapter 2, verse 9, we see that God himself speaking of that battle says, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them. Though his height was like the height of cedars and he was strong as the oaks, I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. It's just figurative language for how God himself was the one who destroyed the Amorite completely. The reality is that the Amorites were a sinful nation. And God had every right to judge them for their wickedness. And he had judged, and that's what he was doing when he sent Israel into the land to completely destroy the Amorites. One might say, well, did he give them a chance? Oh, yes, the Lord gave them a chance. He had given them much chance. Back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, when God had ratified his covenant with Abraham, and his descendants, he talked about, he told Abraham how his descendants are going to go into a land, basically Egypt, where they would be enslaved for 400 years. But he says to him in 15, Genesis 15, 16, then in the fourth generation of your people, they will return here to the promised land, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And what God, had, God basically is implying here that for 400 years, he's going to allow the Amorites to, to give them time to repent for their iniquity, to turn away from their iniquity. But it rather, really, it is also a time where they would see the sinfulness of the, the Amorites continue and grow. Their iniquity, even in the times of Abraham, was not completed. It was not, had not run its full course. But by 400 years later, the nation had continued and increased in their wickedness. And so God sent was now using Israel to judge that nation, 
just as he has a right to judge all sins, sinners and all wickedness completely. Make no mistake, in the judgment, God will destroy everyone. And though we might call it genocide, it is the righteousness, it is the righteousness of God to judge all who are sinners and wicked. God simply was using Israel as his instrument. And just as you think about it, there's a foreshad- intentional foreshadowing here when God does this. For just as Israel's entrance into the promised land foreshadows the Christians' entrance into heaven, so the destruction of the Amorites in the land of Canaan also foreshadows God's future final judgment of all sinners. It's the same, it's a, it's a simple, similar uh, foreshadowing. So what do we learn from this event then in light of these things? When the Amorites opposed, when the enemies came and attacked and opposed them, Israel, in obedience to the Lord, was strengthened by the Lord. They found their strength in the Lord to fight against their enemies. Now, as Christians, uh, it does not mean that necessarily we need to go physically fight against our enemies. The Bible tells us, the New Testament particularly tells us that we are at war, though. Make no mistake. We are in a spiritual battle. We are all uh, battling constantly as we sojourn here on earth, but our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's Ephesians Ephesians 6.12. Our battle is with the rulers, with the powers, with the world forces of this darkness, with the spiritual forces of weakness in the heavenly places. Paul in Ephesians 6.12 is basically telling us that, in Ephesians uh, uh, 6, it's telling us that our battle, there's a spiritual battle going on. Much more dangerous than the physical battles that go on in our world. Physical battles of this world destroy bodies. The spiritual battles that are going on destroy souls. Condemn them to eternity in hell. And in for this spiritual battle, God has not left us defenseless. God has given us, as Paul said, writes in Ephesians 6.12, He has given us the spiritual armor to put on for the battle. And that's Ephesians 6.13-17. But even before putting on the armor that God provides, we learn in Ephesians 6.10 to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That when we fight the battles that we're fighting in this world, we need to find our strength not in ourselves, but in the Lord. Because the Lord is the one who goes and fights for us. He gives us the armor to defend ourselves. And if we are to succeed and to, to not be hindered in our sojourn to heaven, we need to find our strength in the Lord. Because we will face obstacles. We are fighting battles out there. And either we're going to depend upon ourselves or we're going to depend upon the Lord. We're going to fight in our own strength or we're going to fight in His strength. And you know when we fail, it's because we fight in our own strength. But when we have victory, it's because we fight in the strength of the Lord. Let us not try to fight our battles on our own for we will stumble. But if we ask of him, our great God and almighty God, he freely provides for us all that we need. If you're feeling weak in your journey, ask the Lord for strength. Put on the armor that he provides. Take up the sword of the spirit, his word, and pray. And in these ways, God gives you all that you need to be strong in the battle against the enemy forces. Conclusion, when the next generation, next generation of Israel got their chance, 
They found themselves facing similar trials and tribulations as the previous generation. They found themselves being tempted with the same old sins as their parents. But there was one more thing that had not changed, and that is their God. Their God was still faithful. And in contrast to the first generation, they learned to trust in their faithful God. They learned to walk by faith in God. And they, are, they set for us an example of today. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. We're all, we all, all of us face the same struggles and temptations. And God is faithful, though, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. The temptations that you and I face along this journey as pilgrims are not new. They're not something unique and only you face. All of us face them in different forms and different ways. They've been faced by previous generations of God's people. And we must learn to walk by faith in our faithful God. We must seek Him when we face obstacles. We must look to Him when we sin. We must follow Him wherever He leads. And we must be strengthened in Him when we face those battles. I'll leave you with just the questions that simply reflect that is that for you to think about this week or discuss in your small groups, whom do you seek when you face obstacles in your journey? Where do you turn to? Hope it's the Lord. Where do you turn when you fall into sin? What do you do? And whom are you following in your sojourn here on earth? Are you following yourself or are you following the Lord? And then by strength, what strength are you fighting the spiritual battles of life? And hopefully all these things we could resoundingly say that we look to the Lord. We will look to the Lord to walk by faith in Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for our time in your word this morning. Thank you for giving us the example of the Israelites, their triumphs as well as their failures. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us, to remind us that we too are all on a journey, that we're sojourners, that this is not our home, that we're simply heading to our promised home. And God, we thank you that you are faithful, that the crises and the temptations and the trials that we face are not new to your people. They've been faced by others before us. Let us learn from their example. Let us learn from their failures. Let us learn by their faithfulness. Let us learn, Lord, to depend and look to you always. Help us to be people who walk by faith until you bring us home. God, we thank you and praise you for Jesus, for it is ultimately he who makes the way possible to allow us to enter into the celestial city, into your kingdom, because it is he who died and paid for the price of the judgment for our sins. And God, we thank you for providing for us Christ. Help us to always look to him and to look to you. Help us to always walk in the strength that you provide. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.